think they'll have that on the tour? Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, so smack dab in the middle of the 1990s. You can read all of my written work there at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you like the show that you hear today, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It's a companion podcast to this one, except it goes a little bit older. Films of the 1980s, and the name of that is called Around the World in 80s Movies. You can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a new series of films, all covering the same franchise. But the film I'm going to be talking about today is the one that started off that franchise, and it came out in 1993. One of the most famous of all films, one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. In fact, it was the biggest Worldwide at the time of its release in 1993, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a PG-13 rated film. It does have some intense science fiction terror. The runtime is two hours and seven minutes. The main cast includes Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, and Richard Attenborough, with supporting roles going to Bob Peck, Martin Ferrero, Wayne Knight, Samuel Jackson, the director, of course, as I mentioned, Steven Spielberg, and the screenplay credited to David Kep and Michael Crichton. Jurassic Park's origin actually starts with that name I just mentioned, author Michael Crichton. Back in 1981, Crichton was attending this, this museum where they had a, a dinosaur exhibit. And while he was there, he was observing this young child in attendance, and that child was calling out species of dinosaurs during this slideshow presentation and pretty much nailing all of them, realizing that dinosaurs seem to have some sort of universal appeal. Young, old, it doesn't matter what race, religion, creed, ethnicity. Crichton determined that he was going to write a screenplay about dinosaurs, make it into a movie perhaps. And it wasn't the first time he had dabbled in it. He had actually written a novel, a full novel in 1974 called Dragon Teeth. It remained unpublished until until his death. Actually, just a few years ago, it was finally published. But that concerned paleontologists searching for dinosaur fossils in the 19th century. But Crichton's new screenplay idea was going to concern a med school graduate student who would subversively clone a pterodactyl from fossil DNA. Crichton felt this film should probably climax with the pterodactyl running amok or flying amok and the subsequent battle therein. But what Crichton really struggled with was not the climax, but what happens before. Why the student wanted a pterodactyl to begin with. How he was going to do things like feed it or keep it hidden from the public. Maybe this was going to be more silly than terrifying. So the screenplay lay dormant, at least until 1985. And that's when reports began to surface among the scientific community that they were exploring the possibility of cloning endangered or perhaps even extinct animals, and they would be brought back to put into zoos. So Crichton imagined maybe there was, could be a zoo that would be cloning dinosaurs. So Crichton imagined, you know, a zoo could clone dinosaurs. 
but he still had to fill in the blanks who would fund such an undertaking. And also, there would be dangers involved with doing so. Computerized containment systems that would be necessary to keep dinos in would be glitchy, and criminals could also poach these dinosaurs for exploitation. It would be an interesting movie at the very least. So he returned to his screenplay idea. He wanted to explore some new scenarios. One involved dinosaur clones running amok, after escaping the laboratory where they're created. or Another one, kind of resembling dragon teeth in a way, about time-traveling dinosaur collectors, going back and getting the dinosaurs and bringing them back to our time. But regardless of which way he went, he continued to hit similar obstacles. There were elements missing that made it implausible. In 1988, Crichton was at MIT, and he learned of a paleontologist named George Poinar Jr. He was doing DNA studies at Berkeley. Now, back in 1982, Poinar had examined a 40 million year old airtight chunk of amber, and within it contained this female fungus gnat, and it was so well preserved in that amber that its DNA was speculatively viable if they wanted to clone it. So Poinar hypothesized that other insects, biting insects like mosquitoes, could be similarly encased somewhere, and they could hold DNA from long-extinct species. So Crichton brainstormed this new idea, this cautionary tale. Scientists would be hastily exploring cloning possibilities from prehistoric mosquitoes to bring back dinosaurs, driven by big financial considerations. Ethics would be pushed aside. And thinking about how this might be eventually funded, Crichton hit upon the one missing link, the plausibility element he'd been seeking all along. This could be funded by a very eccentric billionaire, somebody who might fund the research to make this massive zoo theme park attraction. Now, Crichton was hesitant to return to theme parks here because he was risking comparisons to his prior theme park run amok story called Westworld, which he wrote and directed back in the 1970s. But yet he could not imagine any other rationale that would work. So he decided to take this idea, run with it, and incorporate elements of one of his childhood favorite books, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. And he would reimagine this not as a screenplay, but as a novel so he could explore all of the scientific rationale at his leisure. And that novel would be called Jurassic Park. And the Crichton's first draft featured a young boy witnessing dinosaurs in captivity. They would eventually escape. And when he was finally done with his first draft, Crichton handed the book off to his usual circle of literary confidants, who would be very honest and tell him what they thought of the film. Now, they despised, in particular, the child's perspective on things. They really could not relate to really seeing this from a child's point of view. And there were also some underlying distasteful elements because of the child abuse implications of the story. So... Crichton decided he needed to make the main character an adult. So over the next several drafts, he tried to replicate that childhood sense of wonder, but within the body of an adult. Each revision tried a new main character. He couldn't quite replicate it. And the prior characters would become supporting players in the new revisions. But eventually, he found that the childlike sense of wonder would be most exhibited by a paleontologist who spent his entire life studying dinosaurs, finally seeing real-life dinosaurs in front of him. Crichton submitted his final manuscript for Jurassic Park in May of 1990. 
After this, Crichton happened to be in script meetings for a different project with longtime filmmaker friend Steven Spielberg. They were discussing ideas for revising Crichton's long gestating screenplay concept. It was formally called Code Blue, which would be a day in the life of a Chicago emergency ward. And it would be based on Crichton's own experiences while he was interning at Massachusetts General Hospital. That idea, by the way, later got repurposed as a TV show under its new title called ER and became a huge hit for both Crichton and Spielberg later. But in their conversation for what would become ER, Spielberg asked Crichton what else he might be working on. And Crichton was a bit coy. He wanted to keep this idea secret, but he would drop one hint, which was he was working on a dinosaur and DNA story. But that little hint was enough to pique Spielberg's complete interest because Spielberg happened to be somebody with a huge obsession with dinosaurs. This obsession that he had since he was a, a young boy in Haddon Township, New Jersey. Haddon Township happened to be near the excavation site of the most complete dinosaur skeleton to that date. And he also had very fond memories of visiting the dinosaur museum displays at nearby Philadelphia's Franklin Institute with his father. He became hugely passionate about dinosaurs after that. So Spielberg would not let this go. He continued hounding Crichton for weeks, give him more information. Crichton finally revealed the full premise. And when he did that, Spielberg's mind was absolutely blown. He begged. He wanted to read the galleys before it was published. He wanted to see this story completely play out. And when Spielberg finished reading it, he called it the most brilliant combination of science and imagination that had ever been conceived. And he assured Crichton that a major bidding war was going to ensue and Spielberg was going to be among them. Now, Crichton was reticent about selling film rights to just anybody because he was still bitter that 20th Century Fox, they had acquired the rights for his novel Congo, and then they had subsequently shelved it. Paramount did eventually make it in 1995, largely off of the popularity of Jurassic Park. But Crichton wanted Jurassic Park made by a proven director and for a studio that was intent to make it straight away. Spielberg preferably, if Spielberg promised to direct it, not just produce it, Crichton wanted Spielberg to be the one. Now, Spielberg did promise that he would, but when they started discussing it further, Crichton's agency revealed that they had already shopped the film rights out to six different studios. So, seeking to have some control as to its destination, Crichton wanted the agency to limit the bid, instead of going out to whoever was the highest bidder, to bid it only to studios that could offer $1.5 million and a proven director and producer package. So during a certain time period, these studios would have these producers and director pitch their ideas with a phone conversation to Crichton. Universal and Spielberg eventually won out, of course, over packages by Warner Brothers, who put together Tim Burton as a director and Joel Silver as the producer. 20th Century Fox had offered Joe Dante to direct and Sand Dollar Productions for producing team. And Columbia TriStar put forward Richard Donner with Goober Peters as the production. Paul Verhoeven was asked. He had recently failed to get his own Disney-produced dinosaur film off the ground. He was interested, but he never did quite get to making an offer. While James Cameron actually put an offer together, he was envisioning an R-rated, ultra-violent take, but he missed out on the submission deadline by a few hours, and so it had already gone to Spielberg by that point. Maybe all for the best, anyway. Crichton's agreement did include a screenplay adaptation for an additional $500,000 and a little bit of a profit percentage on top of that. Now, Steven Spielberg 
initially imagined it as kind of a spiritual sequel to a film he wanted to do a sequel to, but never quite got around to doing Jaws. He wanted Jurassic Park to be similarly like a roller coaster experience, but it would begin with a T-Rex escape halfway through the film. Spielberg was a bit sensitive at this point of his career. He wanted to avoid rehashing the backlash that he received from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom for being too ultra-violent, so he tempered Crichton's very gruesome deaths from his novel, and he wanted to keep deaths off-screen. He wanted to also save some time and money in making the film, and so the number of dinosaurs that were in the book, they were reduced by about half, and storyboard work would begin prior to even Crichton adapting his novel into a screenplay, it would just be based around several action pieces that Spielberg noted from the book. So some sequences, though, grew so elaborate that others happened to be cut. There was one involving pterosaurs in the aviary and uh, another very lengthy and elaborate river raft escape soon found its way cut out. Production designer Rick Carter, he was somebody who worked with Amblin and Spielberg, Amblin being Spielberg's production company. Carter had designed all 44 episodes for Spielberg's Amazing Stories TV show. He also did the Back to the Future sequels, among other things, for Spielberg. He was given basically a two-year head start while Spielberg directed Hook to get all of these storyboards together and to create what would become the reference Bible that everybody working on this film would look at, but nobody could deviate from without Spielberg's permission. Spielberg did want the semblance of realism for the film, but after seeing how mundane actual real-life science labs were, he felt maybe a, maybe a lot of fantasy could be injected so he could build cutting-edge laboratories that looked a lot better, at least for film purposes. Crichton had made, in his book and in his screenplay, dinosaur cloning believable. Spielberg had an additional task to not only make them believable to be resurrected, but he had to make the dinosaurs look convincing as living and breathing creatures to film-going audiences. Spielberg, during this time, he had visited uh, Universal Studios Florida, and he saw the sophisticated King Kong ride called Confrontation. And Spielberg wanted something similar to that, full-scale ambulatory animatronic dinosaurs to put in this film, basically robotic dinosaurs that could almost walk and roar on their own. But after meeting with confrontation designer Robert Gurr and finding out what was involved, it was very limiting in certain respects, as well as robotics experts, Spielberg unfortunately realized that full-scale ambulatory dinosaurs, at least at that time, were a bar just too high. So he would be stuck with traditional approaches to his effects. Spielberg did pull in Stan Winston and his visual design team to make realistic dinosaurs that could behave not like monsters, but like animals. In fact, nobody was allowed during any part of the production to refer to these dinosaurs as monsters or creatures. These were animals. Artistic license did creep in from time to time. For instance, Spielberg did order the Velociraptors, who he imagined would be the main baddies of the dinosaurs. They, he wanted them to be twice as tall as humans. In reality, they were probably around the size of humans. But fortuitously, during pre-production, there was actually a 12-foot raptor fossil found in Utah. And so that would keep dinosaur experts mum as to their size. Jack Horner, who served as a dinosaur consultant on the film, in fact, Crichton used Horner as his inspiration for the main character of Jurassic Park, Alan Grant. He mentioned that raptors probably were more bird-like than lizard-like, and they should probably be covered with some colorful feathers, but Spielberg, he opted to keep them reptilian because he thought that would be scarier. These bird creatures would probably look a little too silly. 
So trusting his production team to solve whatever technical hurdles that they had, Spielberg instead concentrated on working closely with Crichton, specifically on characterizations, on character wardrobe, what their motivations might be. And once all of that was ironed out, Crichton fulfilled his first screenplay, 140 pages, the first draft. Unfortunately, it was unanimously disliked. Even Crichton didn't like it. He admitted that there was a lot of fatigue. He was writing the same story for the umpteenth time here. He had tried to condense a very elaborately designed novel into a action screenplay, and, and the balance really didn't work. So Spielberg said he needed a revision, and he wanted it to start slower instead of going right into the action. And he wanted no more than 110 pages because he wanted to allow time to explore those action sequences. And this time Crichton decided he was going to write the revision in chunks. He would do each chunk one at a time. So that way he could adjust each chunk, each section to Spielberg's desires before he would proceed to the next instead of turning it all in at the very end. Now filming would take place on Hawaii's Kauai Island, and that's where Spielberg had filmed the opening scenes to Raiders of the Lost Ark before. Spielberg chose Hawaii over other sites like in Central or South America because there would be ease of road access there. There would be a better political atmosphere than a lot of places in Central and South America. Spielberg's main reason was his desire to stay in nearby hotels and to eat food that wasn't going to give him dysentery. Interior and jungle scenes would later be filmed on Universal sound stages. Phil Tippett and his team was hired to produce Go Motion puppet work. Those would be based on Stan Winston's designs. And Tippett was chosen because not only he was a Go Motion puppet expert, but he had specifically done prior work with dinosaur projects. But after Spielberg considered removing a scene of stampeding hadrosaurs, he deemed them unconvincing with puppets. Effects guru Dennis Murin of Industrial Light and Magic suggested that his team, who were hired to add artifice concealing blur to these stop motion effects, that they tried to do a computer generated visual effect to simulate a stampeding herd without having to build more than one expensive maquette. Murin did change the silly looking duck billed hadrosaurs to Gallimimuses because he felt that they would be much swifter and much more exciting. And when they put this together with the skeletal Gallimimuses, the results blew Spielberg away. So they decided to test even further. They scanned Stan Winston's T-Rex model, and they used that to animate in wireframe for the jungle. And they also put it, this T-Rex in the foreground. And when they saw this, everybody leapt to their feet at seeing how realistic it looked. And after learning that CG was going to cost $10 million less than doing Go Motion, Spielberg scaled back full-scale animatronic dinosaurs and eliminated Go Motion puppet dinos almost entirely in favor of CG. Now, Tippett happened to be devastated by this. He felt he had produced his best work for Jurassic Park. But when Tippett saw the crisper, the more fluid CG dinosaurs, much more elaborate than he could make on his own, he muttered, I think I'm extinct. And that became a line that Spielberg used in the film to represent paleontologists upon discovering living dinosaurs. So Tippett felt kind of shamed and kind of rocked by this, was going to leave, but Spielberg asked Tippett to remain. He wanted him to take a step sideways and remain in the production because he felt that Tippett's expertise in dinosaur movement could be very valuable in guiding computer animators toward realistic representations of dinosaurs. So even though Tippett initially resisted, he eventually accepted his new role. 
He started watching nature documentaries. He wanted to study birds. He visited zoos. He recorded various animals and how they moved. He hired a, a mime, a professional mime named Leonard Pitt, and he would be used to train the computer animators to try to simulate on their own with their own bodies the motions so that they could learn the body movements involved. And they would use that to use Tippett's newly invented motion capture armature called the Dinosaur Input Device that would allow them to put those movements into the computer using a smaller version of the dinosaurs. Spielberg also wanted distinct personalities for dinosaurs. He didn't want all of the dinosaurs acting very similarly, just like animals would have distinct personalities in real life. So he required sound designer Gary Rydstrom to craft unique dinosaur languages from sound recordings. All of the dinosaurs should sound very different from each other. Rydstrom used recordings of several dozen different animals, played at different speeds, different tones, different frequencies, and then put them together to make his own unique dinosaur voices and language. A 20-foot-tall mechanical T-Rex model that was created, it malfunctioned from time to time. Spielberg wanted constant rain during one particular scene. It would soak into its exterior, and then that put more weight on, and uh, the mechanics were a bit out of balance, so it would be kind of herky-jerky, but eventually they did get it to work. Now, after Crichton had finished his two required drafts, Spielberg did want some richer character work. Crichton had the basics down of the plot. He wanted to work on the characters. So just so happened that screenwriter Malia Scott-Marmo, she had worked with Spielberg on Hook. She was doing additional character work for the, uh, the Captain Hook role for Dustin Hoffman. She was spotted reading Crichton's book by producer Kathleen Kennedy. Kennedy walked over to her. She mentioned that they were actually currently adapting that into a movie. Marmo expressed interest in being involved as she could, and Spielberg did hire her. Marmo was allowed to borrow Spielberg's annotated copy of Crichton's book for putting in ideas of what he wanted. She changed entrepreneur John Hammond away from Crichton's evil, greedy version of Walt Disney to more of a, a misguided but rather benevolent showman who, not unlike Spielberg, invested in technology to try to create awe-inspiring spectacles for the public to believe the impossible. Hammond would remain alive for sequel purposes rather than Crichton's ending where he's shredded by a velociraptor in the visitor center control room. Marmo also nixed Ian Malcolm's character from the book, the mathematician character, by injecting his science crusader traits into the main character, Alan Grant. However, after Marmo did a couple of attempts at a screenplay, Spielberg just was not feeling it. He felt it was a miss, and so they parted ways. And next came David Kep. David Kep happened to be just off of Death Becomes Her, and he had a contract with Universal. So Spielberg brought Kep in, and he told him he could ignore prior scripts so long as he adhered to the current storyboards and set designs they had already designed. So Kep wanted the film to open with a much more globe-hopping adventure before it would eventually settle into the singular fictional island location of Isla Nublar. But like Scotch Marmo, Kep contemplated removing Ian Malcolm because he found him uninteresting and burdensome to the story. So he also would incorporate Malcolm into Alan Grant. And he made Grant and Ellie romantic partners instead of just platonic colleagues. And they would have a story arc involving Grant's resistance and then acceptance of fatherhood through his exposure to Hammond's grandchildren who were there on the island. Now, the irony that creating dinosaurs for profit 
reflected the film's plot was not lost on Capitol, and that's why he struggled to villainize these greedy people exploiting dinosaurs to make theme park attractions and sell merchandise because that was the entire reason that the film was being made to begin with. So he decided to keep Hammond alive, and he sensed that the billionaire, being mournful of all of the mistakes that he made in his hubris, was much more powerful than being randomly killed at the end by the Frankenstein that he created. The one thing that Kep struggled with was to explain DNA extraction and cloning in a very simple and interesting way, one that was not going to result in a lot of lulls in the film. And Spielberg putting on his thinking cap, he recalled the Frank Baxter films that he saw as a kid, very instructional films. He suggested maybe a two-minute instructional cartoon presentation resembling the kinds of videos that you would see prior to Disney theme park rides. It would fit in not only with the nature of the film, but it would be able to deliver for young and old the main gist of how things were cloned. So Bob Kurtz and his team of animators were called in and they provided the animation starring this new cartoon character called Mr. DNA. And Mr. DNA was going to explain how prehistoric mosquitoes would draw dinosaur blood before they were preserved in amber for millions of years. And then scientists of modern day would extract the DNA that they would use to clone the dinosaurs. Hammond interacts with the animation on the screen that is done as an homage to animator from the early 20th century, Windsor McKay, who interacted live on stage with Gertie the Brontosaurus, which was the first ever film dinosaur. Now Spielberg did bring back Scotch Marmo and wanted her to review Kep's draft, and she provided about 12 pages of notes that Kep invariably incorporated for his future revisions. Now, although Spielberg did really want deeper characterizations, he wanted more rounded characters, Kep continued to winnow a lot of the character touches, the discussions of their personal lives, in favor of longer action set pieces. And Kep's excuse was that he had received this letter from this young boy who knew he was working on this film and who was begging him not to begin the movie with a bunch of boring stuff that does not tie in with the dinosaur island. There was no need to waste any time. He wanted more dinos. Spielberg read the letter. He realized, boy, times really have changed. What worked for Jaws probably was not going to work for 1990s audiences. 90s audiences wanted fewer character touches. They wanted more action. So Spielberg subsequently approved Kep's fast food approach and told them to deliver a snappy page turner without a lot of the lengthy exposition that normally would have been applied films in the past. Harrison Ford, he was the first person who was sought for the main hero, the Alan Grant role. He passed, though. He thought that the premise was just somehow too fantastical. He, he says it was like going to Mars in a way. He couldn't really make heads or tails of it. Kurt Russell and Richard Dreyfuss were also sought, but they were too pricey. Sean Connery was as well for John Hammond, Kevin Costner for Ian Malcolm. Their price tags were just too high. So at that point, Spielberg decided yeah, maybe they should stop searching for major stars. Maybe they should invest more of that money toward the technical side because, you know, really these dinosaurs were the true stars of the film. That's what people would be coming to see. He didn't need to have box office performers in the main roles. Instead, he wanted actors who seemed smart enough to deliver a lot of the technical dialogue that was necessary convincingly. So after failing to catch William Hurt's interest to star in the film, Spielberg instead hired Sam Neill for Grant. Neill happened to be somebody that Spielberg had long admired, especially in 1989's Dead Calm. He had wanted to work with him for some time. Neill did not even read the script, but he could not say no to Spielberg, especially in a film about dinosaurs. That seemed like a can't miss. 
Neil was called in. He decided he was going to do the character with an American accent because he was supposed to be American. But Spielberg told him maybe he should disregard that. But after Neil reverted to his native New Zealand dialect, Spielberg then changed his mind, told him, try something different. Don't use his real voice. So Neil settled as kind of an American accent with hints of Australian because he rationalized that Grant spent a lot of time in Australia on digs. Now for John Hammond, Spielberg pursued actor-turned-filmmaker Richard Attenborough after Sean Connery turned it down. Attenborough directed Gandhi, which bested Spielberg's E.T. for 1982's Best Picture Oscar. In fact, Attenborough very generously admitted to Spielberg that E.T. probably should have won that year. He thought that was the better of the two films. Attenborough had actually declined acting offers for two prior Spielberg films. Spielberg had actually been pursuing him for some time, but he did agree to Jurassic Park if Spielberg would allow him time to complete post-production on his film Chaplin, which he did by doing three-week rotations on Chaplin and Jurassic Park. Now, after Chaplin's completion, Spielberg also asked Attenborough to direct part of Schindler's List for a couple of weeks while he edited, at the end, Jurassic Park, Attenborough, though, was by that point unavailable, so George Lucas helped edit Jurassic Park at Skywalker Ranch with Kathleen Kennedy overseeing the music while Spielberg flew to Krakow to film crucial snowy exterior sequences. Spielberg did stay in constant communication with the Jurassic Park crew. He used separate audio and video satellite transmissions that were being beamed into this Polish TV station to keep up with the dailies. Spielberg experienced kind of a a toxic shock a whiplash of sorts between doing the two very different films, between the the dead and grim seriousness of Schindler's List and the light action-oriented tone of Jurassic Park. The mix of emotions caused Spielberg to habitually call Robin Williams, the star of Hook who became a friend, for so-called care packages, which were these impromptu stand-up monologues that Robin Williams would use to cheer Spielberg up over the phone. After Robin Wright Penn and Juliette Binoche declined the Ellie Sattler role, the the paleobotanist colleague of Alan Grant, they auditioned many other actresses, including Sandra Bullock and Helen Hunt and Gwyneth Paltrow, before they eventually landed indie film darling Laura Dern, who Spielberg admired since her appearance in 1985's Smooth Talk, and she had also been nominated for an Academy Award for Rambling Rose. Dern did hesitate, but she was talked into it by her Wild at Heart co-star, Nicolas Cage, who had always dreamt of being in a dinosaur movie his whole life and thought she would be crazy to turn it down. Now, for Ian Malcolm, which was on the fence as to whether they were going to keep him in the movie or not, Jeff Goldblum eventually bested other comedic kind of actors like Jim Carrey and Cameron Thor. Cameron Thor, by the way, was actually cast in a, a smaller role as Dodgson in this film. The Malcolm contenders were told up front that Malcolm might be cut, elements incorporated into Grant, but they liked Goldblum's comedic oddball approach to the character, so much so that Spielberg compelled Kep to keep Malcolm in the film at all costs. So Goldblum added his own character touches. He viewed Malcolm kind of like a science rock star, sporting a leather jacket, cool glasses, but also a deeply flawed person. He had prior marriages, he had kids, and... Malcolm's flirtations with Sattler, they kind of had real-world implications because Jeff Goldblum actually started a relationship with Laura Dern during the filming of Jurassic Park. Goldblum would eventually divorce Gina Davis while Dern's director Rennie Harlan in order to get engaged together, although they did part two years later without getting married. But in the twist of fate, Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan themselves got together and eventually married. 
Now, for young Tim, Spielberg wanted Joey Mazzello, who had auditioned for Robin Williams' son in Hook, but was deemed too young at that time. But he wanted to get him into a movie because he really liked his performance there in the audition. So Spielberg decided he was going to cast him here, and he reversed the ages of the novel's siblings, making Lex his older sister instead of younger. And she would take on some of Tim's traits, being kind of a computer expert, And the reason why Spielberg really wanted to flip the ages was because he felt that if she were younger than Mazzello, he didn't think that audiences would accept, say, a five-year-old girl being attacked by dinosaurs. That would be a little bit too scary for audiences. So Spielberg spotted Ariana Richards, who eventually was cast in the Lex role while he was channel surfing, and he invited her out to audition with many, many other young actresses, including Christina Ricci. Their auditions were mostly them just screaming in fear, and Spielberg knew Richards was going to be the one when Spielberg's wife, Kate Capshaw, she woke from her deep sleep on the couch in another room and then ran in, worried that there was somebody actually being hurt. Richards' performance was that convincing, so she was hired. Prior to injecting CG dinosaurs, the actors were essentially reacting to nothing except maybe a tennis ball or a drawing of a dinosaur on a 50-foot pole in order to set their eye lines. And because there weren't actual dinosaurs on the set, Spielberg would have to run after them, roaring into a megaphone, which they found occasionally too amusing. Creative shortcuts did reduce the speculative budget in half. $100 million was what they thought initially it might cost up to, but it was between 50 and 70 million dollars in the end. Pricey elements were removed. There was a scene of Lex riding a baby triceratops that was about going to cost about a half million dollars. They had designed it for about a year before Spielberg decided it was just a little too cloying. It was a little too cute, maybe too Disney-like to be in the film as it currently stood. Other cost-cutting measures, including making Jurassic Park a work in progress, it wasn't quite complete, that curbed the need for fully realized sets. Not all was smooth sailing during the film. Filming was suspended on the the very last scheduled day of shooting in Kauai. Hurricane Iniki was coming to the island. 160 mile per hour winds forced them all to huddle in the hotel's grand ballroom. Being a film crew had some perks, though. that gave them the advantage of having some generators for electricity. They had craft services on board. A Victoria's Secret catalog entertained the adults. Spielberg distracted the kids by celebrating Ariana Richards' 13th birthday. Doing scary ghost stories kept their minds off of the storm at hand. Attenborough, who was a survivor of the bombing of London in World War II, he slept through most of it. After the storm passed, the phone lines were down, roads were blocked. Kathleen Kennedy decided to jog to the nearby airport to see if the jet that she had requested from Universal to take them all back to the mainland was there. The airport happened to be too damaged, the jet wasn't there. But Kennedy did manage to secure a ride on a small airplane that was dropping off volunteers to other islands in Hawaii. She arrived at Honolulu International Airport where she ran into a man named Fred Sorensen. And that man happened to be the man who played Jacques, the pilot, from the opening to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sorensen happened to be a Hawaiian Airlines pilot and he was in the process of loading a cargo plane full of medical personnel bound for Kauai. So Universal arranged with the National Guard and Hawaiian Airlines for trips to bring medical personnel and equipment to Kauai and fly out the cast. And when they flew out, on board would be the cast and the crew and other equipment, and eventually everybody involved with Jurassic Park was evacuated within 48 hours. Now, the film does deviate from the book, 
you know, in the end of the book, the, the island essentially gets firebombed and all the dinosaurs presumably destroyed. Spielberg did want sequel possibilities. So that meant they had to keep the dinosaurs alive. And he kind of had compassion for the dinosaurs anyway. He thought, he thought it would be too tragic for them all to go. So a raptor attack in the climax in the industrial kitchen of the visitor center. That was kind of an homage to Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, The Shining. Had modern steel cabinets, a raptor locked in a food container, the children hiding in the cupboards. If you've seen The Shining recently, as I have, I actually reviewed it for Around the World in 80s Movies. It will seem somewhat familiar to you. One early script ending did have Hammond blowing up a velociraptor with a rocket launcher. That changed eventually to Grant using a platform crane to try to manipulate the museum T-Rex skeleton, kind of like a marionette, and it would eventually skewer one velociraptor with one of its ribs, and then he would crush the very last velociraptor with the skeleton's jaws. Spielberg's technical advisors kind of derided this ending. They thought it was kind of weak. So Spielberg decided to come up with a better idea because of ILM's CG advancements. He could rethink things. He could bring back the T-Rex, put her in the visitor center, and then that T-Rex could battle to the death with the last raptor. And audiences would just love it. And then a banner would fall to the ground that read, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, which was an homage to the 1970 Hammer classic that really cements Jurassic Park as doubling as a film, not only about dinosaurs, but about our love of dinosaur movies. Jurassic Park, when it was released, it was, as you know, a major smash. It shattered the record for the biggest opening weekend box office performance, and it eventually grossed the most money for any film worldwide at the time of its release, $913 million, surpassing the record set by Spielberg himself, his own E.T. back in the day. Spielberg's deal was unbelievable. It was half of Universal's box office take, plus video sales, plus merchandising, 20% of the gross up to the point where they started getting profits, and then he had half of all profits after it broke even. Overall, Spielberg personally earned $294 million for directing and producing Jurassic Park, shattering the record for most money made by one person for any single piece of entertainment of record that some speculate still continues to this day. It also earned, as you would imagine, Oscars for its visual effects, as well as its sound effects and sound editing. It's only dated by the fact that pretty much CG is so commonplace today in just about every movie that has any kind of visual effects involved. But for its time, it was a real trendsetter, a real masterpiece of its era for special effects. It also is a very fascinating premise for a movie. It's undeniably a captivating premise. You almost, you really do believe that this is a, a plausible thing that could happen. And it does become that theme park attraction in movie theaters. People went to the movie theaters as they would going to Disneyland and provided a memorably captivating experience witnessing these very lifelike dinosaurs come to life through state-of-the-art computer graphics for its era it definitely did deliver all of the goods and more than people were expecting people were absolutely floored enough to see jurassic park again and again in the movie theater i mean the t-rex attacking the tour car sequence that's a real showstopper so jurassic park a very entertaining movie i don't think it's necessarily a very deep movie the characterizations but for what it is, it's a good film, enough for me to give it three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means I do think it's a solidly good film, one I would recommend to anybody who is interested in the subject matter, not just people who are interested 
in dinosaurs, but people who love action, adventure, science fiction, thrillers, even some horror, although that's pretty mild by horror movie standards, I do think that it delivers all the goods you could want to entertain young and old, which was the goal of the film. Enough to give it three and a half stars out of four. If you have your own thoughts on Jurassic Park and you want to impart them to me, you can find my contact information at my website, links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. I post stuff on Instagram that I don't necessarily talk about here, including some trivia and history that I just don't have time for here. You can find the links to all of that at my website. Quipster.net is where to go. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, well, of course, I'm going to follow this up with its sequel, The Lost World Jurassic Park, which came out in 1997. It was also directed by Steven Spielberg. Maybe not as successfully to some people, but I will get into the history and the behind the scenes production elements of that. So even if you're not a huge fan of The Lost World for whatever reason, you should probably still be entertained by discovering a lot of what happened to make that film and maybe what made it go somewhat astray from the the vibe of this film at the very least. So check that out. Please subscribe or follow the show if you haven't done so already, and you will get that in your feed whenever that drops. But until then, thank you everybody for listening and joining me as we travel to the 90s and beyond. (laughs) 